this week on Forward. We imitate really profoundly interior things like what other people want from a very young age. And that informs a lot of the decisions that we make in life from what major we choose in college to what kind of career we go into. And we usually don't even understand how that process is playing out inside of us. We're social creatures and our desires are going to come from other people, real, fictional, historical, right? They don't have to be people on social media. Be careful who you make your enemies because you become like them. And I think this is a, there's a really important lesson to be learned here um, in U.S. politics. It causes us to miss out on a path forward. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, entrepreneur in residence at Catholic University and author of a phenomenal book, Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life, Luke Burgess. Welcome, Luke. Hey, Andrew. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, your book was a pleasure to read in part because we have a lot in common. Uh, So you were an entrepreneur of a venture-backed company in Las Vegas, essentially, where uh, you ran in the same circles as Tony Shea. His company, Zappos, almost bought your company. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Vegas with Tony as well. But is this our first time meeting? Did we ever see each other in person? I don't think we did. I think this is it. Yeah, I I thought so too. I I thought I'd remember. So why the heck did you want to become an entrepreneur? And I know there was some soul searching uh, down the stretch when you were like, is this really what I want? Well, the reason I wanted to become an entrepreneur is really the topic of my book, Mimetic Desire. Uh, Before I was an entrepreneur, I was an investment banker. I went to NYU. I worked on Wall Street. I was on this hyper-mimetic track doing what everybody else wanted to do. My life was totally miserable. And um, back in 2005, 2006, being an entrepreneur wasn't quite as cool as it is today. But I had a couple of my friends leave banking and go start companies in Silicon Valley And it was me seeing them do that, that inflamed this desire in me. It sort of gave me the courage to leave. And then once I started starting my first couple of companies, I realized that I was also caught up in this game of of imitation, looking to my right and my left and trying to keep up with what my other entrepreneur friends were doing. And that's kind of the theme of of what I wanted to write about because I realized I am imitating people that are modeling desires to me all the time without even knowing that I'm doing it. And I finally woke up when I was 29 years old after having success as an entrepreneur, meeting Tony Shea, um, but also feeling whiplash in terms of my goals and ambitions were all over the place. And um, looking back on my life, seeing the influence of various models of desire on me, Tony himself um, being one of them. You know, I'll never forget the first time that I met Tony. I'd had some success with a company. Um, I met Tony. Was driving a, I was driving a pretty nice car. And I met Tony. And you know, he, he was just jeans and t-shirts every day. And I started asking myself, well, maybe that's, I should be a little bit more like that. Because maybe that's what a, a successful entrepreneur is like. So that went, I was in this funny kind of mimetic process where I didn't have a stable sense of self. Yeah, so mimetic, so people understand it, uh, it's just uh, trying to imitate others. Is that correct? It's imitating other people, but imitating them at the level of their desires. So the reason you know we use the word mimetic is that imitation is something that's a bit more visible, something that we're aware of. Mimesis or mimetic desire goes under 
a surface level imitation to the, the very imitation of interior things like what other people want. So we're imitative creatures. We, that's how we learn math. It's how we learn language. It's how we learn all kinds of cultural norms. And many people have known that for a very long time. What Rene Girard discovered, who is the thinker that really inspired my book, is that we imitate really profoundly interior things like what other people want from a very young age, starting with our parents, starting with maybe our siblings and our friends. And that informs a lot of the decisions that we make in life from what major we choose in college to what kind of career we go into. And we usually don't even understand how that process is playing out inside of us. Your book is largely about why we want what we want, which is fascinating. And I love this diagram you had of Maslow's hierarchy of needs where you say, look, this is way too cut and dried, where the truth is after you get beyond the basics, you have no idea uh, what it is that you want. And so you take endless cues uh, as a kid from your family, but also maybe from advertisements. You talk about how when you were in, co in college, then it all became about banking and consulting, which is, by the way, something I, I literally wrote a book about myself. Uh, I wrote a book called Smart People Should Build Things, and it was about how young people right now just keep getting funneled to uh, banking, consulting, law, and and I wanted them to become entrepreneurs. And then now you're taking to the next level, being like, even being an entrepreneur is just because these other people did it. Which, by the way, a version of that happened to me. Um, where I met an entrepreneur in my 20s when I was just starting out at the law firm. And then I was like, fuck this law shit. I want to be that guy. And then I tried to be that guy. And then my company crashed and burned. Uh, and then I kept trying to be uh, an entrepreneur for a, a period of years, had some success, and then created Venture for America, where I guess our paths intersect, where I was like, more people should become entrepreneurs. Um, because I, I thought that it was a harder path to follow, um, and that you could use some support. Uh, so let's say that someone hears your thesis and is like, okay, so I get that people pick up their desires from people around them. Uh, so what? Like, isn't that what we're supposed to do? Like, uh, and you, you detail how this actually leads you in uh, some not great directions. Well, I mean, it can happen in positive ways and negative ways. I mean, you can be inspired by a really positive model of desire for, you know, the kind of um, dad or mom you want to be or the kind of, um, you know, person you want to be in, in your career, you know, honest, uh, hard worker, integrity. But it can also work in negative ways. And I, I should just say and clarify, I love entrepreneurship. I, you know, I'm still an entrepreneur. And in fact, sure. I've, I've, I've developed a program. It. Yeah. That, you know, that teaches entrepreneurship at the high school level in, in several dozen high schools around the country. The difference, though, in that program is we need a diversity of entrepreneurs doing different things and not having this reductionist uh, idea and definition of what being an entrepreneur means, where you have to start an app, it has to be tech-related. I mean, that stuff is good. Like, what, who's actually going to build things that we really need, you know, for the next pandemic? For, so I think, like, the, the mimesis can even hypertrack entrepreneurs into all competing to build the same things and we miss opportunities and it decreases innovation. So that's, that's where it can become negative. Um, and it just, it can flip both ways. And as a person, as an entrepreneur, um, or whatever it is that you're doing, you just have to understand when the mimesis is maybe affecting you in a positive way and when it's causing you to just look in this kind of very narrow area because everybody else is. Well, well, your, your book points out that it tends to lead to conflict uh, and people wanting the same things. You end up having these uh, tugs of war, whether that's in an organization or even society-wide. 
It, well, it, so imagine turning 10 toddlers loose in a room that had like more toys than they could ever need. And what happens? Almost inevitably, they kind of focus in on one toy because one kid picks it up and then they all become fascinated with it and pretty soon they're having a tug of war over it and they're fighting over it. So this, this kind of amesis reinforces their desire for the same toy, even if there's a thousand toys in the same room. So it draws or tracks our attention to something, even if that thing is insignificant, right? I mean, I even go back to, I've got a, a kind of a riff on why we became so fascinated with the moon. Um, you know, the moon in itself, sure, there's some scientific discoveries there. Because but it's it, made it was, of cheese, man. Because, because it's, it's made of cheese, right? No, it was Russia, right? It, so, and, and that we became completely obsessed with, with getting to the moon, and it took on this huge symbolic thing that was um, more than the moon itself, right? You know, so th these mimetic rivalries play out as children, it plays out in geopolitics, it plays out in our careers, and we need to be, so it does lead to conflict, and it leads us to do some, you know, some, frankly, some idiotic things when we become obsessed with a rival, for instance. And every, and every decision that we're making is sort of around what that rival is doing. I think this happens in politics all the time. Um, you know, the right wants to do this thing, so we need to do the opposite thing. And whether that thing makes sense or not, you know, um, it, it happens both ways. So I think understanding the, the role that mimetic desire plays in leading to rivalries, because we're taking other people as cues or models of desire, um, if we don't like them, what they want becomes a, a negative model for us, right? This is called negative imitation. People think of imitation only in the positive sense, like they do X, so I do X. Imitation also takes a negative form where somebody else does X, so I must then do Y, just to differentiate myself from them. Yeah, you make that point really strongly in the book. And as someone who is the parent of two boys and also uh, had an older brother myself, a lot of the time it is a negative reaction where, you know, you, the, the older brother is responsible. So you become the, the rebel. Uh, not to say I have any experience with that, but uh, there, there was a subtext in your book that I enjoyed where it did feel like you were talking about our politics. I, I'm glad you picked that up because I, I didn't really want to get into it in the book because I thought it would be an entirely separate book. And maybe that's the book that I might write next. I'm not sure. I don't know if I have it in me to do that. But, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I wrote it because I was becoming concerned about the rivalry that seems like a zero-sum game. And I, I sort of, in my mind, having learned about mimetic desire and mimetic rivalry and conflict and um, the scapegoating that it eventually leads to, I began to see politics in this, um, as this highly mimetic process with very few people that were willing to transcend the zero-sum game. And um, that was a subtext that was running throughout the entire book. And um, I kind of was hoping that people would make the connections themselves. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing, you don't get to have your say, 
That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. Yes, because we are all, <laughs> I mean, because, you know, I mean, we, we all uh, bemoan what's happening now. You know, what, what's interesting, Luke, is you, you had an alternate explanation for something that I've seen and been struggling with for years. The word I've used for it is institutionalization, where it's like you, you're in uh, a particular environment, let's call it the Beltway of D.C. or Hollywood or a university, uh, and there is this dominant culture uh and you feel like okay uh everyone else is doing this so let me go along with it uh and you have this incredible lack of going against the grain um in a lot of these environments where you can look up in american life and be like shouldn't someone have pointed that one out uh you know or or uh, just a random example popped into my my mind which was like a Kendall Jenner Pepsi commercial when she sort of like, you know, Pepsi cures racism. And then you're like, shouldn't someone in that, that room, but like, Hey guys, this is like not the greatest where, where you, you have, and the other way of characterizing institutionalism is groupthink. Um, and you had in many ways a deeper explanation for why we see so much groupthink. Yeah. I mean, it's groupthink and then there's group desire and sometimes they can be two different things, you know? Um, you can have people thinking the same thing and saying that they, they think the same thing, but under the surface, um, what they, they're really wanting the same thing. So, I mean, this happens in academia all the time. Um, you know, you just have a very kind of, um, hyper focus on these very small things, you know, like Freud would call it the narcissism of very small differences. Everybody gets focused on certain things and, yeah, I, I think that it's, I mean, they're, they're related. Um, and I think that it, it causes distortions in reality and our perception of what people actually think or what people actually want. I mean, the studies have shown that the things that people say on social media are like way more extreme than what they actually think or what they would tell a buddy that they're having a beer with in the backyard. So there's, there's some distorted perception and this weird thing that leads to uh, what, a, what a social scientist, um, Elizabeth Noel Newman, called the spiral of silence, where you know, you're sitting around a table, people are having a conversation, you don't really agree. Um, with everything that's being said, but you're, you stay silent because you don't yep. want to like stir the hornet's nest and then they perceive that you agree with them and then it just sort of spirals into this thing where nobody actually knows what anybody thinks, nobody knows what anybody really wants. And I think that's one of the problems we have in the country today. Yeah, do you think social media um, makes that a hundred times worse? I mean, I'm obviously leaving question where I think social media does make it a hundred times worse. But I'm, 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 you and I are old enough to remember a time before social media um, and that now it seems like there are these messages that 
dominate social media and then you know like if you raise your hand to be like hey guys maybe that 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 one's like you know not spot on your your cost benefit is terrible because you're like oh some people are going to slag me and maybe I'll get attacked for doing something rancid I just like let it go you know like uh and it'd be I, I think I just about everyone listening to this has probably done some version of that where you saw some sentiment I mean <laughs> that you were like yeah you know that like uh like I, I I'm gonna like avoid this particular topic yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely, I mean, who, I don't have the emotional energy to deal with what happens when, you know, I've made the mistake of doing that in the past. And then, okay, so what happens if every, you know, level-headed person who's like, yeah, that might be a little out there, I'm going to say, like, just stays quiet because they don't want to deal with it, then the whole space is dominated um, by people that never hear that. And this was a problem, I think, even before social media, I mean, you know, like high school existed before social media for sure. But I think social media has accelerated it big time and done some things. And it's sort of like, I feel like it's an out of control train right now and I haven't given up on it. I mean, I think it's possible to build, um, better forms of social media, but we can't ignore the human element of it. And mimesis is human and, you know, we can't design it away. I think there might be some things that we can do to mitigate it, to decelerate things, to, you know, to put some brakes on it, kind of like, you know, the stock market has circuit breakers or something. I think there might be some ways that we can improve it a little bit, but man, fundamentally, this is a human problem in my opinion. And, you know, we get to the, you know, thinking, I've been thinking a lot about AI lately. And a lot of these discussions are sort of, even the discussions we're having about these things are in kind of a very narrow band where we're just trying to use more technology to solve a technological problem. And we don't even have the right people at the table to have the conversation. The way that I always frame that issue is, you know, we have a three city problem um, and we need a three city solution. And in my mind, the three cities are Athens, Jerusalem, and Silicon Valley. Athens is the city of reason. Jerusalem is a city of, you know, religion and tradition. Silicon Valley is technology, right? And right now, AI is being completely dominated by maybe Athens, but definitely by Silicon Valley. And a lot of the deeply human questions that we have, like the anthropological questions, the ethical and the moral questions, some of those are going to need to come from, you know, maybe what I call Jerusalem as a metaphor. I just think we need to get everybody at the table to even begin starting to solve those problems because it just seems like we need a human, a human solution for this. And, you know, we just need to kind of, I think, step back and, and be willing to have the deep conversations about human nature and where we're going with this. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors. 
of sleep medicine is a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Yeah, you have a very philosophical view of the world. Are you spiritual yourself? I am. I'm a, I'm a Catholic, and, and, and in fact, I, I you know I spent several years living in Rome, seriously discerning the priesthood. Wow. So the obvious question in everyone's mind would be, where am I supposed to get my desires from, if not from my social context, my peers, uh, those around me? I would say you have to get them from from somewhere. You know, one of the main points in the book is that we don't generate our desires out of thin air. We don't generate them out of nothing. Um, you know, this is called a, this is a romantic lie um, that I think we we have in a in a highly individualistic culture. We're social creatures, and our desires are going to come from other people, real, fictional, historical. Right? They don't have to be people on social media. They don't even have to be the people that we interact with every day. I've been deeply influenced by you know, books that, I, that are 500 years old you know, um, in history and models of desire that I've taken, that I've drawn on from a bigger universe. So I think maybe it's time to expand our universe. Um, I, the same thing with when I was an entrepreneur. All of my models, all of my influences came from this very insulated world of Las Vegas startups. And it was only when I sort of admitted other influences in my life, like, you know, hey, maybe I should kind of look outside of this little bubble that I'm in, um, that my, my world started to open up a little bit. So, you know, I, I think we need to be, just be intentional about the kinds of um, people that are affecting what it is that we want. Because normally we just take it for granted. You know, we, we think that everything that we want is the product of our autonomous selves. And so there is some aspect of having the humility to realize that we are influenced, but we can choose who we're going to be influenced by. I live in the middle of Washington, D.C., so I've got to, you know, um, I need to be careful about, you know, I, I can't even go to a bar with my wife um, without sometimes being negative influenced by the, the quality of the conversations that I hear in every TV being, you know, cable news, you know, 24 hours a day. So I have to look outside of the world that I'm in even today. Uh, the, the way you structure your book uh, was about kind of the descent of where mimetic desires lead you. Uh, and then you talk about various techniques and countermeasures uh, to examine them more deeply, um, which I enjoyed. And I, I did examine my own life a bit. I guess it would be impossible not to. Now, the entrepreneurial mindset uh, or approach through uh, thick and thin has actually fueled me for a long time. Um, and uh, the, my approach to it has been solve a problem. Problems like, hey, like, why aren't there enough entrepreneurs? And I spent six years on that. And then the next was, hey, uh, like, why aren't we responding to AI and advancing technologies? Uh, maybe we should alleviate poverty and get in front of this thing uh, before AI comes and uh, displaces millions of us. And then now it's, hey, our political system seems deeply broken and dysfunctional. Like, uh, you know, let, let me work on that. Now, have there been limitations to this particular approach? Uh, for sure, sometimes. I mean, being an entrepreneur 
uh, is profoundly isolating. There's a lot of struggle. Um, that there is a, a lot of forced positivity. Um, I was relating to you at the beginning of this convo that so you're you're an expectant uh, parent. Um, yep. You're you're going to be a dad for the first time, and uh, that's an awesome time and journey. Um, I did relate that the first year I was a, a father was the toughest year of my adult life where the, this entrepreneur mindset you have, at least for me, it totally failed me hmm. um, because you get there and you're like, okay, what am I supposed to do? Like, let's just be can do and, and uh, positive and optimistic. Um, and in the context of having a newborn, uh, a lot of it just didn't matter, didn't work. Uh, a friend of mine said something to me that stuck with me. He said, it's the only time in your life that just saying, okay, I'll just work harder uh, is a total non-answer. <laughs> <laughs> and and so it stretched my soul in a particular direction. Um, it, it led me to see uh, deficiencies in myself and my family uh, in, in a way that I hadn't known. But th- this is a long-winded way of asking, like if people are on a version of this journey, how do they start to find what you call these other models of desire or something that can be more lasting and sustaining um, and might lead to fulfillment, growth, personal satisfaction. So there's, there's a difference in the book between thin desires, which are these highly mimetic shifting desires, the things you want today that you're highly unlikely to want six months or a year from now, and then thick desires. And just to relate this to what you were describing, Andrew, because I've got a baby on the way, and we were talking a bit before we got started about what that first year was like to you. There's something about grounding yourself in a concrete situation or concrete um, sort of objective problem, um, not to call a baby a problem, but you, you, there are a lot of challenges, right? And it's, there's something incarnational about it that somehow strips away the thin stuff, you know, and, and I think having some kind of groundedness, um, real problems, you know, um, are a way to sort of re- remember what's important, which is Make another your way life to think. worse, and then the thin desires will fall away. <laughs> you, you, well, you know, I it, usually we don't need to go looking for those things, you know. <laughs> no, unfortunately, um, yeah. Yeah, you know, so, you know, my dad has Alzheimer's, and, you know, that's oh, been no. an incredibly grounding thing in my life for the past few years. Every time that I'm with him, life becomes very simple, you know. And like all of these, um, you know, crazy ideas that I have, some are good, some are probably not so good. Um, they they sort of they they recede, and I am able to focus on something that's incredibly important to me. My, I have my our baby's not even born yet, and from what I hear, there's really nothing like the moment the baby is born. But already, um, I I've found some of my thin desires fading away a bit, and I I know my wife would say the same thing. So there is, um, I think, grounding oneself in something real and, and incarnational is, is an important first step. And, and then just kind of reflect, and there's, there's an also an element of history with thick desires. So, you know, when I've reflected back on my whole life, going back as early as I can remember, like Little League Baseball, growing up, the things I really cared about, um, and then kind of tracing your own history of desire and like how what you've wanted have, have changed over time. Like I wanted to be a doctor. I literally applied to med school because I watched a lot of ER with my mom and I thought George Clooney was really cool. And then just sort of seeing the way that different influences have played out in my life, you know, Tony Shea being another one, gives me perspective to see like patterns 
and I gain some pattern recognition and I see, you know, Luke, usually when you're involved in something that integrates all of these things, it's something that you do for a very long time. You know, it's like sustainable for you. When you are attracted to something and it feels like this, um, if it feels like a push in the back rather than a gentle, nice tug at the front of your shirt, there's a difference between the way that those two things feel. Um, kind of like getting caught up in a riptide. I now know what those things feel like. And part of why I know what they feel like is because I've went through this process of looking back at my life very carefully and seeing what happened when I pursued certain paths based on, you know, whether those influences were kind of strong mimetic influences or whether there was something a bit more enduring and peaceful about my, my involvement in those things. Well, you certainly have a, a very like serene manner to you, Luke. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny. You seem zenned out for another term, um, which doesn't surprise me. Having read your book, um, that you, you seem to have reached like a more elevated plane um, than a lot of folks simply by recognizing what you call these models of desire instead of just being subject to them or buffeted by them. You're like, oh, so so this is something I'm now exposed to, uh, which alone can be. Um, transformative. Uh, it's something that, that you write about. There's a quote I loved that I think a lot of people now can see uh, in our country's politics. Um, and you do have some ideas on how we can get beyond this. Um, so this is a quote by Gerard, who, who inspired much of the book. Human beings fight not because they are different, but because they are the same. And in their attempts to distinguish themselves, have made themselves into enemy twins human doubles in reciprocal violence. That, that, that quote would piss a lot of people off, I'm sure. Yeah, because who wants to think that they may be more like the very people that they think are the problem? You know, no, nobody wants to think that. But we, we often are more alike. I mean, in, in world mythology, um, there's almost always, in almost every culture, there is a story about twins, usually identical twins, uh, involved in conflict. You know, um, in the Bible, in the book of Genesis alone, there are five stories of sibling rivalry. And Rene Girard looked at this phenomenon, you know, like, okay, they're miss, but why? There's usually something true, right? They're getting at something true in human nature. And the truth that he thought they were getting at is that we're kind of terrified of similarity and we often hate that which um, is kind of like us, right? Um, and, and this, that plays out in, in funny, small ways, you know, like, I don't know, somebody walks into the office with the same exact haircut that we just got wearing the same clothes. You know, it's like, it's a little weird. We don't like that at all. Um, and we also tend to see in other people, um, sometimes the very things that we don't like in ourselves. And Gerard also said, be careful be careful who you make your enemies because you become like them. And part of why you become like them is because you're so focused on them. You imitate them often in negative ways, you know, that they become the biggest influence on our lives. And I think this is a, there's a really important lesson to be learned here um, in U.S. politics. It causes us to miss out on a path forward, um, on a way out of the predicament because we're so focused in on each other. And the image that I like to use are, are two people that are, you know, I like to think of people standing shoulder to shoulder, looking out at the future, right? Um, 
Because if they're just standing face to face in a standoff, they, they can't see the way out. And um, one small, silly little story I'll never forget when I was a kid, and I, I thought of this story after I started writing this book. I, I remember seeing these two dogs um, behind a baseball field fence near my house. And the two dogs were in a standoff. And they both were kind of barking, wanting to get on the other side of the fence. And they would look at each other. And they were kind of on the verge of fighting, hair standing up, tails. And one of them would kind of try to walk away to get away. And then he would turn around and look back. And neither one of them could get away from the other one. And all either one of them needed to do is just ignore the other one and walk around the fence, right? like 50 yards away. But they were unable to do that because their focus was, was completely on each other. And there's a lesson in there when it comes to rivalry and conflict and the, sort of the mimetic force the centripetal force that holds us inside of a system or an institution or a way of thinking. And we're not able to transcend it because our rival is completely dominating our mindset. Yeah. You, you catalog 15 techniques that you use to try and transcend those kinds of destructive dynamics. Uh, let's have you share one or two so people can have a sense as to uh, making this uh, positive and, something that they can recognize then maybe get beyond? Sure. There's a couple of very simple things, you know, one of them that you could do today um, if you wanted. And that's, you know, quite simply naming who important models in your life have been and who important models in your life today might be and actually writing them down. You know, there's something powerful about, about naming models of desire and be careful because models of desire are not the same thing as role models. Um, models of desire are people that in some, some sense affect what we want. So they're modeling a desire and not just a role. Um, you know, my, my accountant is a role model of, uh, accuracy and organization for me. I have no idea what the guy desires. <laughs> so he's not, he's not a, he's not a model of desire for me. So, you know, put them all down positive and negative, right? On a piece of paper and gain some clarity. You'll probably remember some tomorrow or the next day. Um, and that helps gain some you know, naming things gives us some power over them um, or over what they do to us. Um, this is psychology 101, naming your emotions, same concept here. And then the other thing is, and this one is a little bit harder, the, the, one of the most positive things that's ever happened to me in my life, in fact, where I learned about mimetic desire and Rene Girard in the first place, was when I went, when I went on a silent retreat. And a silent retreat, if, even if it's for a half a day or a day, will do some pretty scary things to you in a good way. Like things will kind of like bubble up to the surface that you didn't even know were there once the noise of technology and everything recedes. So I think you could start very small with this, you know, even, even a couple of hours, no technology, put everything away and see what desires bubble up to the surface. Because my theory and what, what I've experienced in my own life is that the thick desires that I have, the things that are really important to me, are often just completely crowded out by the thin mimetic desires, the, the short-term things that I want. And if I spend the rest of my life just trying, like chasing the thin mimetic desires and not even letting the thick ones bubble up to the surface, I won't even know that they're there. You know, it's like leaves that are covering them up. So that's not an easy thing to do. Um, those are just, there's 15 in the book. Those are, those are two small ones. I get into a lot more detail about how to do those things. Um, but I think that those are, those are just easy ways to start.
<laughs> yeah, you, I, I love that you have an entire newsletter uh, dedicated to finding anti-memetic desires. Like, what do you want for yourself that's not just because, uh, you know, like you, you saw someone else want it? Uh, I'm going to have you close on an idea that I thought was really fun. What is fresh manistan? Fresh manistan is the word that I give to a situation like high school or like being a freshman anywhere, um, like being a freshman in high school or college. Uh, I suppose like being a freshman uh, politician on the Hill, too. Is that, I think there's this phenomenon of, of fresh manistan that exists in our world. And I use that term to describe two very different um, forms of imitation in the book. The first form of imitation comes when the models that we're imitating or the people that are influencing us are kind of outside of our world. You know, so for me growing up, you know, professional baseball players, I, I, I wanted to play, you know, be a major league baseball player. Um, you know, probably people that I saw on MTV, those people are what Gerard calls external models of desire. They're outside of our world. We're not going to really come in contact with them usually. Um, and they they model desires to us from from a long ways away. The other world or the other sort of way that imitation plays out is in an environment where all of the people modeling desires to each other are all in the same place. They're all in the same world. And there's no better Much example more of that. For us, yeah. Yeah, and far more common for us, right? So our families can be a fresh manistan. Uh, obviously, school can be one. And imitation gets a lot more tricky in that situation because uh, we're all aware of each other and we can, act, we can actually be doubly imitating each other. We can be reinforcing desires to one another. Um, this is how you know, trends and, and fashionable ideas start or ideas go in, in, a, in fashion and out of fashion when we're in that kind of environment. And the difference between the two is that in a fresh Manistan kind of environment, it's often very hard to know like who's influencing who, who was the first mover here. Uh, and it causes a, a loss of differentiation. Um, if people aren't aware that that's happening to them. So I, I think that social media is uh, plunging our world into one giant fresh manistan because we're all kind of the same on social media. On Twitter, everybody's got the same uh, limits to their profile, the same amount of characters. And this sort of forces a degree of similarity that I don't think is healthy. Fresh manistan is the enemy in many ways. I, you know, I remember showing up for college as a freshman and it, it certainly seemed like uh, every, uh, social interaction was like the most important thing in the world. <laughs> now, now we look back at it and be like, Oh, that, 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 uh, you know, that young, dumb version of me. Uh, didn't you know someday you were going to run for president anyway, <laughs> which I definitely do not know at that point. Well, Luca, uh, I, you know, um, I, I, I see you as an entrepreneur philosopher, uh, which is a very rare combination and something we need a lot more of in the world. And I think your book actually has a ton of insight for helping us move beyond our current dysfunctional brand of politics. Uh, I highly recommend people check it out. Wanting the power of mimetic desire in everyday life. It will make you think about uh, what you want and why. If someone wants to keep up with you, Luke, uh, how can they best do so? Um, they can, I write a weekly newsletter called the anti-memetic newsletter, and you can find that on read.lukeburgess.com. Fantastic. Luke, keep up the awesome work and, 
Uh, congrats in advance. You're going to make a tremendous dad. Oh, thanks so much, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>